God, maker of heaven and earth. God, that, that we would not bow down to any other. Uh, God, no, uh, no clever words or crafty schemes. God, that even the sun, the moon, and the stars bow to you, God, and we are grateful we get to worship you. God, just speak to us through your word this morning. God, let us have open ears. God, Spirit, come and uh, God, teach us, remind us who you are, God, and who we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll set them right there. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. Genesis 37 is where we're going to be. We're going to start in, in verse 2. If you remember the story of, of Genesis so far, I won't summarize all of it, but, but needless to say, we, last week we talked through the descendants of Esau. And it was a, a genealogy, just kind of walking through what was happening in the land. And so now, as we, we get to uh, Genesis 37, what we saw was the descendants of, of Esau were very, very different than the descendants of Jacob. Jacob settles in the land of, of Cain, and the descendants of Esau continue off into Seir and, and, and just live uh, a life that, that, that was not exalting to the Lord. And this passage uh, made me laugh several times when I was reading it this week uh, because it focuses on, on a lot of, of kind of family relationships and things that are happening there. And one of my favorite ones is that Joseph is a tattletale. And as a father with three kids under four, I get it. Oh, Addie's five. As a father with three kids, and I don't know their ages, I get it. Just this morning... Bryn was pestering Addie, saying, give me something, do this. And Addie was like, no. And so Bryn came to tell me, and I said, stop tattletelling. And she said, okay, only for me to hear her run into the bathroom where Morgan was to tattle to Morgan the same way. So we just left her in the corner at the house, and she'll be, no, I'm just kidding. It's a story of uh, setting the stage for really the rest of Genesis for us. Um, with this short 10 verses that we'll cover here. So uh, let me pray, and then we will just dive into this text like we always do. Uh, God, thank you for today. God, I thank you that in Scripture you record the, the stories that are true. You don't paint people in lights that they're not. You show us reality. And you show us how you work in the midst of reality and you work in the midst of life and how you work in the midst of a people who are, are sinful and rebel against you, yet none of that thwarts your plan and none of that thwarts your will. God, I'm grateful for passages like Genesis 37, 2 through 11. I pray that you would use it this morning to encourage our hearts or we need encouragement, convict our hearts or we need conviction, and help us to uphold the gospel and glory in Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Genesis 37, verse 2. <clears throat> These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. And he was a, a boy. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his other brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. 
So, so to start this passage off, we get, these are the generations of Jacob. And that's been one of our keys as we walk through Genesis, is that word generation is toledot, and there's ten of them in Genesis. And it works as these, these signposts, these markers of saying, now this is a different section, that, that the human author Moses is going to transition through the Holy Spirit of, of writing now about something else. And this is the tenth toledot. This is the last one in Genesis. It's Genesis 37. Genesis has 50 chapters. So what we see is this is a long Toledot, a long generation. And the reason why is because we're transitioning in more than one way here with this passage. Up till this point, God has has chosen Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. But now what we see is God's transitioning from these patriarchal men to this family that's all going to be under this covenant together. It's going from just one family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now to this, this more like a tribe or a kingdom or a nation that they will become when they're enslaved in Egypt. So unlike Isaac's brother Ishmael and unlike Jacob's brother Esau, Joseph and his brothers are all under this covenant together. So how does this happen? How does this shape up? Remember that Moses is the human author who's recording these words. And when Moses is writing this, the, wilder, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. And they've just been exit, exiled, exit, exodus, uh, taken out of Egypt by God. And so they're wandering around asking questions of, well, who are we? How did we get here? What happened? Why is the world so broken and sinful? Why did God send us into Egypt for slavery? What are we supposed to do now? Who are we supposed to be? And so what this passage is up to this point is is God's been sharing with them the story of of creation and then the creation of his people. And now they're getting to these brothers that these Israelites be like, oh, we get these guys. These guys become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it starts with Joseph being 17 years old. Can't even vote. Pastoring flocks with some of his, his brothers. The text tells us he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, which means that he was something like helping them or an assistant to them. We're not told what exactly happens. All we're told is that Joseph goes back to Jacob and he gives a bad report of what his brothers were doing. He tattled. We're not even told if it's true. We're not told if it's false. All we're told is he gives a bad report of his brothers. And as the story goes on, we learn the character of the brothers, and we learn the character of Joseph. And so this is probably what's happening is what happens with kids all the time, where you absolutely have a child who is doing something that deserves to be tattled on. And then you have the other child who is all absolutely very quickly willing to tattle on the other child. It's not just a simple black and white, but it is probably more black and white than we want to admit. The brothers are not doing what they're supposed to, or or they're not at least completely or fully doing what they're supposed to be doing. They needed a bad report to be delivered about them, but it sure feels like Joseph is pretty eager to deliver that report too. He views himself as the morality police. He's sucking up to his dad, being the tattletale. Again, we're not told what he said, But you and I know that tone matters when we say things. And so we learn early in Joseph's life is very different than the end of his life. At the beginning, Joseph seems to be talkative, boastful, immature, and unwise in how he says things. 
And, and, and really what we're meant to see here is there is this distinction in the brothers. You have Joseph, and then you have the other brothers. And there's very much a gap and a separation between them. And the reason that divide exists, the reason that, that gap exists, is because the text plainly tells us that Jacob loved Joseph more than he loved the other ones. It says he was his son of his old age, which means uh, he's calling back to Abraham and Sarah when they had Isaac, his grandfather, in their old age. But also, Isaac is Rachel's oldest son. Rachel is Jacob's favorite wife that Jacob made known multiple times. And so you have the favorite wife, the oldest son of the favorite wife, and Rachel has been dead for around 10 years when the story is written. And so Jacob shows his favoritism for Joseph by giving him this technicolored coat. No? I thought maybe the play would get you. Okay. He gives him this coat that the text says is is a coat of many colors. The Hebrew is really tricky here. This kind of phrase describing this garment is used in the Bible elsewhere. It's used in 2 Samuel 13 through 18. And when it's talked about there, it's not a multicolored robe, but it's a robe with long sleeves. It's a royal robe. So probably what Jacob is giving to Joseph that's lost on us because this isn't how we do things anymore is he gives him this, this rich, this ornately decorated, this long sleeve coat that's meant to symbolize that he is a future king or he is somebody of authority. Let me put it in West Texas. It's not a Carhartt. It's not meant to be worked in. It's like a, a tuxedo or a something fancy that, that, that you wear to church, but you don't wear out in the field working. It's a coat that shows he's not going to roll his sleeves up and get into physical labor. And it also means that it's setting him apart even further from his brothers. They didn't get the coat just Joseph the tattletale did. And, and, and think about this. Joseph's brothers are tending Jacob's flock. They are working hard in the hot desert sun all day long, fighting for these sheep and feeding, doing all of the things they're supposed to do, breaking a sweat, all the while Joseph's not doing those things. He's dancing around in his fancy coat. Joseph is coddled by Jacob. We would call it spoiled. Joseph's daddy is there to protect him and to not let anything bad happen to Joseph. So Jacob would do Joseph's homework so he would get a good grade. Jacob would make sure he's at the school board meeting so that whatever decision was made, it was in Joseph's best interest. He would send passive-aggressive emails to Joseph's teachers and principals, making sure they knew exactly where he stood, no matter what was coming up, no matter how big or small of a deal it was. Jacob is the epitome of a helicopter parent who just hovers around their child in the name of protecting them and teaching them. But what he ends up teaching Joseph is if life doesn't go your way, Daddy will swoop in and fix it for you. Now listen, every father should love their children. That's not the issue here. The issue is that Jacob loved his children in various degrees. And he came by this naturally. If you remember the story of his parents, Jacob was favored by Rebekah, while Isaac favored Esau. And and, and what we also catch here is that Jacob loved Joseph not because of Joseph. Jacob loved Joseph because of who his mom was and that he was the child of his old age. He naturally doted and spoiled and hovered and defended Jacob in a way that he did not do for his other kids. And so what ends up happening is the other brothers resent 
not Jacob, but Joseph. That's the way that sin does these things with, doesn't it? What had Joseph done to them other than being an annoying little brother? Nothing. But their hatred was directed at Joseph because maybe, just maybe, if they could pull Joseph's status down, then maybe their status would be raised in their father's eyes a little bit. And they hated Joseph so much they couldn't even acknowledge him when he walked into the room. The text says that they didn't speak peaceably to him. That's shalom. When somebody would come or leave, you would say shalom. That's their way of saying hello or how are you doing or doing a handshake. And so when he would come into the room, they're not even looking him in the eye. They, would talk to, they wouldn't say shalom. They wouldn't say peace to him. They just ignored him. Making it painfully clear that Joseph knows his brothers don't like him. And his brothers know that Joseph knows that they don't like him. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, His dream is this that I have dreamed. Behold, there were binding, uh, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. We've seen dreams in Genesis before, but this dream is different. Every other dream we've seen in Genesis up to this point, when God is revealing somebody to somebody, God clearly speaks and God clearly acts. It's not symbolic. We think of Jacob's staircase where the angels are ascending and descending and God is sitting at the top of that. It's very clear what is happening. But in this one, it's a different kind of dream, and it's another transition that the Bible is taking here. Jacob, dreams are kind of a big deal in Joseph's life. And we see here that it's symbolic, but it's clear. Nobody argues the meaning of the dream. Jacob's, uh, Joseph's sheaf stands up, all the other sheaves bow down to him, which the brothers interpret as, you're going to, you think that you're going to rule and reign over us? There's not a question to what the dream means. But it's interesting that God does not speak in this dream. The God in the story of Joseph is not present like he is with Joseph's ancestors. God is active, but he's active in the background, orchestrating events and happenings to cause his purpose and his will to be done. And also what we see here is Joseph's immaturity comes into play. On the surface, we could say, well, Joseph's just talking to his brothers about this dream that he had. He just lacks an understanding of people. But remember, Joseph knows that his brothers don't like him. They made sure he knows that they don't like him. His brothers hate him. They hate that he's coddled by his father. They hate that he's loved by his father. They hate that their dad loves him more than he loves them. And so he shows up with this bright colored coat, this royal coat on. He's like, hey, I have this dream I want to share with you guys. All the while they're sweaty and they've been working all day long at the expense of Joseph who's been sitting in the air-conditioned tent all day. Those are natural human emotions, that sin that wells up within us. I think we can all understand their frustration and how they are upset at Joseph. But Joseph's not innocent. It's clear from this passage that this family is going to be leaders of this coming nation. And that includes Joseph. He has to learn to read people better. Those brothers aren't innocent either. 
They let this hatred, this sin inside of them, well up. What we don't see them doing is praying to God. What we don't see them doing is, is putting stock that maybe Joseph's dream will come true. What ends up happening is they take these seeds of hatred that have already been sowed in their heart and they fertilize them. They harbor them. And hatred is one of those things that if it's left unchecked, it does not stay the same. It grows. You end up getting annoyed with whomever you you hate or dislike or whatever word you want to use so you don't have to say you hate somebody, but we all know that that's the same emotion and feeling that's going on. So if you see them and they say hello, you're like, oh, did you hear the way they said hello? Hate festers. Or dislike, if that's what you want to call it, festers. Or maybe it's apathy where you just don't care. That festers inside of our hearts. And festers is a gross word. It, it, it shows this idea of a cut or a wound that is not healing, that it's getting worse and worse, and it's getting more painful, and it's getting more painful, not because bad things are happening to it, not because it's getting cut more and more, but because it's being left untreated. There's an infection that needs to be cleaned. And so as time ticks by, those wounds, that hatred, that apathy, that not caring, that whatever you want to call it, grows more and more, and it grows more prominent and more prominent. Look at verse 9. And he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers, and he said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. So Joseph has a second dream. And again, he does not read the room well. tells his brothers who hate him and have this growing hate towards him that he is absolutely and completely aware of, that he gets this other dream, which is also symbolic, but very clear what the, what the dream is about. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars bow down to Joseph. And so Jacob gets wind of this dream. And, and again, no one argues the interpretation. They all completely agree with what it means. And so Jacob says, your mother and I are going to bow down to you? Like, it's a little odd because Rachel's been dead for, for a while now, around 10 years. But the idea is clear, a father bowing down to the son? I mean, Jacob doesn't say anything after the first dream. He's okay with the brothers bowing down to Joseph. I mean, he likes Joseph more than he likes the other kids. But he's not okay with him and his wife, his deceased beloved wife, bowing down to Joseph. We see their responses. The brothers get jealous. which if they would just listen to the dream, they were stars. They're not, Joseph's not saying, you're a bunch of nobodies who are worshiping me. He's saying that God is going to exalt our family up into this high place, but I'm going to be the one the sun, the moon, and the stars bow down to. But you guys will be 11 stars. They don't hear any of that. All they hear is that we're bowing down to Joseph, and so this hatred that they have for Joseph wells, and it wells up inside of them, and they begin that jealousy is what it's called this time. Well, Jacob is clearly frustrated. His favorite son is now trying to usurp him. But he also keeps the saying in his mind. 
I mean, Jacob knows how God works. Jacob has had dreams from God that have already come true. Jacob knows that this dream is not something just to shake off. He might be frustrated with what it says, but he also knows it's something to keep in mind. This is more than just the spoiled baby of the family trying to annoy and frustrate his brothers. That maybe the Lord is doing something here. See, what we see in this passage is setting the text, setting the context for the rest of Genesis for us. And there are some things, even in this section of Scripture, that are very similar to the rest of Scripture. Brothers fighting has been a pretty constant theme with the patriarchs in this family that's going on. In fact, Israel means wrestles with God. This idea of strife and wrestling with one another and with God is a constant theme that kind of rides out in, in Genesis. But there's also some things that are different. There's some struggles that, 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 that we seem to have to face in life. And we're all going to struggle with this reality, this, this sin that we can see playing out here, which is complicated because who sinned? Well, everybody did. So who has the right to be upset at the others? Well, to a degree, everybody has the right to be upset at everybody, but you should be upset because you upset other people too. That the sin is manifesting itself out in different ways. And the reality of our life is that continues on until Jesus comes back. So you and I, we sin by doing things, and we sin by not doing things. We sin by how we respond to good things that happen to us. We sin by how we respond to bad things that happen to us. We sin by how we respond, don't respond to good things that happen. Or we sin by how we don't respond to bad things that happen to us. See, the Bible is certainly telling us this story of what happened to Joseph and his brothers and how this plays out in his plan. But he's also telling us a story that's supposed to point us to Jesus. What God is doing through his people. See, the dreams that Joseph has were about telling, uh, that they're also telling us uh, that this family, that this line is going to come through, will include the sun, the moon, and the stars, and that they will bow down. But what we know is that Jesus, the God-man who created the sun, the moon, and the stars, is the only one who is worthy to be worshipped in that kind of way. So that ultimately, those in this family will bow down and worship King Jesus, but that Jesus also comes into this world of suffering and of temptation, and he enters into it with us. See, Jesus is the son who deserves the robe of royalty from his father. And instead, what Jesus does is he takes the robe off and he enters into our world to expose himself to scorn and rejection and abuse and hatred and ultimately death, none of which he deserves. How painful it must have been for God the Creator, the Father, to send His Son into a creation that He knows is going to kill Him. Yet throughout Jesus' life, He never returns hatred for hatred. He never harbors that in his heart. He never abandons, he, he never harbors those things inside of himself. Instead, he at the expense of himself. He sacrifices himself to build others up. God, who deserves to be exalted and glorified by all of creation, comes to exalt those and to, to, to show grace and mercy to those who have absolutely no, no worth in doing that with. 
mean, Jesus could have come and quickly laid out his judgment against anyone who did not measure up to his righteous standard, and it would have been just, and it would have been good. And certainly there is a day when that is coming. But instead, what Jesus does is he delays the judgment. He has this period of grace for you and I where we have an option. We have a way to be counted as righteous as Jesus. And it's by taking his righteousness that he imputes to those who believe in him when he dies on the cross for yours and I wrath that we deserve. The Father sends Jesus into this powder keg of fallen, sinful humanity, giving his son Jesus over to abuse and torture and death. Why? What would cause God to do that? What would cause Jesus to bear that? His love for sinners like you and I. His love in redeeming sinners. Not because we are awesome. And God looks at us and he goes, I need you on my team because you're great. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God's not exalting us, saving us because we're great. God exalts and saves us because he is great. Do you know that Jesus only saves the needy? He only saves those who know they need salvation. He only saves those who have nothing to bring to Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So if we approach Christ with anything other than our sin and no hope for salvation other than Jesus Christ, we're not saved. Grace is something you cannot earn. What we earn is justice. What we're given is grace. It's a gift that's free from the Lord. And faith is only as good as what we faith is only as good as what we have faith in. And so if our faith is in Jesus and something else, then our faith will fail us. Our faith only works if it's in Christ alone. So if you're a believer in Jesus, because of his sacrificial death, God isn't dependent on you and your best efforts to exalt and to, to, to push his kingdom further and further. We will fail. But the kingdom of God is not built on you and I. It's built on Christ alone. So when we fail, the kingdom goes on. And because of Jesus. So we look at a text like this, and the text in in Genesis 37 is important for us because if we're serious in evaluating our lives in light of the passage and in light of the gospel, then what the Lord is doing is he's exposing us to some things that we have got to be careful of. That's the reality of what the Bible does. Life changes rapidly, and emotions and feelings change rapidly. And and, uh, Solomon says the wind blows. It just kind of tosses us around to and fro. And so what we need is a solid rock. What we need is something to hold the standard of morality to, the standard of the gospel that does not change. But what happens in churches far too often is we'll read passages like this, and then we'll walk away with a message like, don't hate other people which is a good point to have. But if we walk away trying to not hate other people and we don't exalt Christ, then we've missed the point of the passage. The Bible is aiming at our hearts much more than it's aiming at our actions. 
if the heart is broken and sinful, if the heart is a heart that harbors hate, then even if you can muster up righteous actions, the motivation is never correct. What the Bible tells us is God sees the heart. And he sees the action, and he sees her words. So we see here at the beginning of this Toledot, this generation of, of Jacob, is that those who are going to be leaders for this, this growing kingdom are nowhere close ready for leadership. And so God is going to send this family, these people through these trying times of difficulty and hardship. If you know the story of Joseph, you know life does not go his way. But in the end, what we see is Joseph has been molded and shaped by the Lord to be the leader that they needed at the time that they needed it. See, much of the rest of of Genesis is dealing with this, what feels like the absence of God. But in reality, what's happening is God is just as sovereign as he was in Genesis 1, as he is in Genesis 37, as he is today. And that oftentimes, because God is God, he sends people through trials and through temptations to mature people, to grow people uh, into being who the Lord would have them to be. This is so often true in our lives. If you look around, there's a hesitation to take leadership positions. There's a hesitation, whether it's a leadership position in the church or if it's in the community or maybe it's even in our own families because by and large we feel like we're disqualified. But what if God isn't calling perfect people to lead in those areas? What if he's calling people who know that they're not perfect and who trust in the gospel and humbly approach those leadership roles? What if God is sending you in your life through things that are meant to mature you, things that are meant to grow you, not to because you're perfect, but because God is going to use imperfect people for his glory? And maybe for us, we need to lean into the gospel of Jesus more and more and recognize that Christian leadership is not perfection. Christian leadership is knowing the word and living the word out in humility and in repentance. And maybe for you, you're like Joseph's brothers. There's hatred or anger or apathy or whatever you want to call it that you've stored up in your heart against someone or something. And what God is showing you in this stories and in the stories to come is that God is ultimately, God is the God of justice. But God is also the God of love. God's love is a holy love. God's justice is a holy justice and God's grace is a holy grace and God's mercy is a holy mercy. What you and I have to remember is we are not God. To love someone with a holy love is to speak truth and to care about them and to desire what's best for them. See, oftentimes in, in this world when we think of love, what, what comes to mind is what Jacob does to Joseph is where you just coddle somebody. That's not love. 
Or maybe it's like the brothers where you just write somebody off. That, that's kind of how you're going to deal with them. You can't do that either. Instead of, of anger and hatred and apathy that well up inside of us, when, when the Lord brings those emotions into your heart, into your mind, which they all happen, the rightful response of Christians is to pray and lay them before the feet of Jesus, to pray that what would happen to that person or that thing that you harbor, that hatred, that anger, that apathy towards, is that it would be what is best for them. And what will happen in your heart, I promise you, is you will not hate them, but you will hurt if they run away from the Lord, and you will rejoice when they come back into him. You'll long for them to repent. Not so that you can go, told you so. But so that you can see them flourish in Christ. Or maybe you're like Joseph in this story. You're not technically wrong in your actions and in your speech, but your heart is certainly not honoring God. There is a morality to you that you say, I can keep the law, I can keep the rules, or at least I can keep the law and the rules that other people see are the ones that are important to me, and everybody else just needs to get their act together and act like me. Do you know that morals cannot save you? We must be careful if this is us. You will be tempted to say all the right things, act the right way, and there is a temptation to be a moral person and an unbeliever. See, the struggle for these kinds of people is that there will be this, this small piece of you. You will put 99% of your faith in Jesus, but there will be 1% that you want to hold on to because you're a good person. And Jesus kind of needs you because you follow the rules so well. I want to read these stinging words from Jesus in Matthew seven twenty-two through 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, what those people did is they show up to Jesus and they give their resume. This is all the stuff I've done, Jesus. Welcome me into the kingdom. And Jesus' response was, you workers of lawlessness. You didn't know me. Maybe for others, we're like Jacob. We coddle certain sins or certain things that we count as more valuable than they actually are, and we put our hope in those things as opposed to putting our hope in the salvation that Jesus offers. And maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something different that the Lord is working on. Know this God is not absent. And God convicts and God encourages each of us in ways that we need it. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Test and make sure it's of the Lord by holding it to the standard of the Bible. And if it is of the Lord, repent and run to the gospel more and more. And if it's not of the Lord, flee from it and run to the gospel more and more. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage of Scripture. God, I thank you for stories of people like Joseph, that if we just know the stories on the outset, we think, golly, God, he must have been so perfect. It must have been so easy to use somebody like Joseph. But then we look at the Bible and we look at the story and we realize, God, that he is just as much of a sinner as as I am, as anybody is. And that, God, your delight is not in taking perfect people and showing them off, but it's taking imperfect people who completely trust in you redeeming them and changing them and glorifying and sanctifying them 
for your glory and for our good. God, I pray for any believers in this room that this text would be one that we would hold up, that we would look at and we would evaluate our lives. And Lord, if there's areas where we need to repent, that you would help us to repent of those and turn to you in humility and grace and that the others of us, God, would rejoice with that. For any unbelievers who are here, God, I pray that you would stir up within them a discomfort. A discomfort in continuing to live the way that they've lived without trust in you. And I pray, God, that they would repent and that they would turn to you completely and fully for salvation. God, as we respond to the word by singing a song, I pray that you would stir within our hearts to worship you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll be here to pray if you want somebody to pray with, but Daniel will lead us in worship. Let's stand.